Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are continuing our short non-consecutive series on Vietnam, featuring the personal experiences of some of its veterans. The Vietnam War was a long, costly, and divisive conflict that pitted the communist government of North Vietnam, backed by its communist allies, against South Vietnam and its principal ally, the United States. The conflict was intensified by the ongoing Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. More than 3 million people including over 58,000 Americans, were killed in the Vietnam War, and more than half of the dead were Vietnamese civilians. Opposition to the war in the United States bitterly divided Americans. Communist forces ended the war by seizing control of South Vietnam in 1975, and the country was unified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam the following year. The causes and necessity of the Vietnam War are still hotly debated today. Our guest in the studio is Mr. Bill McEwen. Mr. McEwen is a native of Columbia, Tennessee. He graduated from Columbia Military Academy. He then attended the University of Tennessee, where he holds both a bachelor and master's degrees. He joined the military in 1966, and after attending officer's candidate school, was commissioned a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He served in Vietnam from July 7, 1967, to July 21, 1968, in Marine Air Support Squadron 3, taking part in one of the largest engagements in the war at Quezon. Mr. McEwen, thank you for joining us today and for your willingness to talk about your experiences. Thank you, Tom. We're also joined in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Tom. Mr. McEwen, before we get into your experiences in Vietnam, tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was it like to grow up in Columbia, Tennessee? Well, I actually grew up uh, outside of Columbia in a little community called Shady Grove. Grew up on the farm, uh, had a great childhood, uh, worked on the farm, and uh, uh, did everything that farm boys do. Did you have siblings? I had one brother who was also in Vietnam, by the way, at the same time I was. Huh, in the same place? No, he was He was luckily in a quite different place. Uh, same branch? No, he was in the Army. In the Army. Um, what about your parents? What did they do? They were farmers. Mother was a homemaker. Uh, she uh, taught music for years. And Dad was a farmer who loved Tennessee walking horses, and that was his passion. Huh. So you had, you uh, did you breed horses on your farm? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, we had colts. Uh, matter of fact, growing up in the 40s and the 50s, uh, my grandparents lived with us, and I was very close to my granddad and my grandmother. So we were all in one house. You went to Columbia Military Academy. Did you have a military tradition in your family? No. Matter of fact, I was, uh, I was the first person in my family that ever served in the armed forces. Were you interested in the military from the time you were a kid? Not really. No, not really. I, uh, once I graduated from high school and went to over at UT and got my degree in history, Barry, uh, I was kind of at an interim, and I just decided that uh, I would serve my country. What year did you graduate from CMA? 1960. 1960. And I graduated... Uh, the first time over at University of Tennessee in 1965. It took me an extra year because I worked my way through school uh, waiting on tables at the athletic train table. So you decided history was your path. What did you want to be? 
I had no idea. I had no idea. As so many of us who study history uh, at the initial, at the outset, I think we're all kind of searching a little bit. That's right. So, so history is a great all-around uh, degree to, to have. Uh, I had a history professor over there that really turned me on. He was uh, uh, he was a uh, he taught Russian history and he was fantastic. Uh, Barry, I don't know whether you remember Bill Lawson at the college. Yes. Well, Bill Lawson taught history at CMA, mm-hmm. and uh, he made history actually become alive to me. So that was the reason I majored in history. Huh. Interesting. So uh, graduated in 65, mm-hmm. you said, from UT. Uh, graduate school immediately? Or no. Or is that the point no, where you're— No, that's where I went in the Marine Corps. Uh, I graduated in December 65, and I went to OCS in March of 66. Okay. So by, by the time you're graduating from college— with a bachelor's degree, Vietnam is underway. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. it's starting to escalate. And, and you know, I didn't, I didn't really realize what was going on in Vietnam. I, it, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of at arm's length to me. So I didn't really realize the the gravity of what was to take place or the gravity of what was happening at that time at e- all. Even at the point where you're coming to to the decision that you're going to join the military. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Had no bearing on Vietnam. Had really no bearing on whether I joined the military or not. Interesting. So, uh, why why the Marine Corps? I wanted to be with the best. Very mm-hmm. simple. Yeah. <laughs> and you knew it was going to be tough. I never really thought about it, how tough it would be. I just always, uh, once I got out, looked around, I said, you know, if I'm going to serve my country, I think I'd like to serve my country with a very, very good outfit. Many of the anti-war protests occurring in the United States centered on college campuses. As a student yourself, I expect you had opinions on the war, even though you mentioned that it felt like it was at arm's distance. But do do you remember any protesting at UT? Do you remember the divisiveness that the war was causing here at home? You know, in 1966, I didn't see any of that much. Uh, I never saw any of that at UT. Uh, and you got to put it in perspective. You've got to remember that that particular time in our history, uh, the anti-war uh, sentiment had not reached a peak. It was just sure. maybe smoldering in the wings. So I know I never saw any in '66. Now, if you'd asked me what I saw when I came home in 1968, things changed drastically. We'll ask you that for sure. So, <laughs> so you decide on the Marine Corps. You have a bachelor's degree, so you're going to go into officers' candidate school. What did your parents think of your choice of the Marines at this point in time? Since nobody, uh, nobody in my family had ever served in the military, they didn't understand. My dad, uh, I remember what he said to me. He thought he thought I was a real good candidate for a mental institution, <laughs> and he said that to me. Huh. He said, "Son, you 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 need to be, you know, you need you need some help." As all good parents probably would, <laughs> right? If they if they care about you, they're gonna. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Makes makes good sense. Um, According to the New York Times, by the time you entered Vietnam in 1967, there were already some 490,000 American troops in South Vietnam. Uh, so it's it's ramping up there. You join the Marines. You know it's going to be a fighting outfit that you're going into. Where was Officer Candidate School? Quantico, Virginia. Des- hey. d- describe for us what it was like. Uh, tough. But I was in real good physical condition when I went in. Uh, I was prepared mentally. And I guess my primary experience out of OCS, which is Officer Candidate School, 
uh, was one of the role models that I've had for my entire life. He was my senior drill instructor, a guy by the name of Carl Taylor. He was a, a very imposing figure. He was about six two or three, uh, not an ounce of fat on him. And he gave me one of the big lessons that I've carried with me for my entire life. He said, uh, I'll never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. He led by example. He busted our butts. 10, 12 weeks, tough. Uh, and to make a long story short, he and I were in Vietnam at the same time, unbeknownst to me at the time. Uh, but he ended up uh, getting a, a Medal of Honor posthumously because he gave his life for his platoon. And what that lesson was for me is he led by example and paid the ultimate price. I never forgot that. It's a powerful lesson. Oh, man. Is it ever? Yeah. When I, I didn't find that out till I got home in later years, and it was a very emotional experience for me because uh, when I was in OCS, uh, my parents could not come and pin my bars on. They were uh, occupied or whatever, sick, I think. And so I had to ask uh, Star- Staff Sergeant Taylor to pin my bars on, and that was a very emotional experience. He and I were very close. He and I had the same birthday, and we had a lot of similarities. And then when I found out that he'd gotten killed, given his life, uh, and got the Medal of Honor for it. And by the way, you can look up uh, Carl Gorman Taylor on the Medal of Honor. You can Google it and see what he did. Sure. So that's a long way of describing my OCS experience. I'm fascinated by it. Uh, you know, you're, you're learning the ropes as a young officer, first time in the military from, from an NCO. You graduate how many weeks later? Ten, I think. Ten weeks later, and you outrank him. I outrank him. He pins my bars on, and then he steps back and salutes me. That's a paradigm shift. It it absolutely is. That's a big paradigm shift. What's also amazing to me is the Marine Corps, you know, they're they're the toughest of the tough, these guys, these grunts. Uh, You have ten weeks under your belt, and you have to command them, which means you have to be tougher than every one of them and show it. Well, one of the the things that they told us in OCS is – we want to kill you before you kill good Marines. I started out with 50 in my platoon, graduated 27. So that gives you some idea. Amazing. And in 1966, they were, they were pretty tough. It's changed a lot, I think. Oh, yes. But it's still tough. So you graduate after 10 weeks. You're a second lieutenant mm-hmm. in the Marines. What's your first posting? Uh, all Marines, no matter uh, all Marine officers, they go to basic school, which is also in Quantico, and it's uh, six months of uh, uh, continued training. So I stayed in Quantico for six months, as do all people who graduate from OCS, and go out to the basic school where you do all kinds of stuff. You, go, you, know, you do night patrols, you do navigation, you do everything. Uh, that's where we're really taught to the basics. The first of leading. OCS leading. is about weeding people out. Right. This is about leading people. So six months more in Quantico. Mm-hmm. And then I went to El Toro, California. I, I got my orders to go out to uh, uh, Santa Ana and Tustin, where I did uh, nine months of intensive. That's where I got my MOS, which is a military <clears throat> a military occupational specialty, which was a, a high-altitude radar bombing control. And that's where I did all the, the, the intensive training to be uh, part of an ASRAT team. Okay, so describe what an ASRAT team is so, so our listeners understand. An ASRAT, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, voice-vectored, high-altitude radar bombing is what it amounts to. We're 
Uh, at that time, we had very sophisticated computers. They would be antiquated today. It was the old analog computers. And we could actually lock on the aircraft. We had an antenna where we could actually lock on the aircraft. And I had a readout that told me everything that he was seeing in his cockpit. I, could, I, could, I knew his exact altitude. I knew his uh, airspeed. I knew everything. And then I would vector him in. I would crank in the targets uh, in our computer, and I would vector that aircraft in. And he would not release the ordinance till I told him. That's that's it in a nutshell. I'm, I'm sure I've left out some things, but I don't want to get too technical. That's a lot of power at your fingertips. It is very a lot of responsibility. Were you aware of it at the time? Yeah, very much so, mm-hmm. because <clears throat> we would not drop that ordinance if he was one degree off course. Or if his altitude was 20, uh, 20 meters lower, his airspeed was maybe 10 knots high, we wouldn't drop. Because if you're at 10,000 feet and you've got trail on those bombs, think about how, how far that throws the ordinance off. It's a lot of math to think about. Uh, well, it was in the computer. But you, you, had to, you had to physically dial in the targets. And if you got one or two digits wrong in the targets, think what that could do. Right. And you were doing this training, you said, in California right. initially. How mm-hmm. long were you there? Nine months. Nine months. Mm-hmm. And were you assigned to a unit at that point? It was a mass outfit, yeah. Mass standing for? Marine Air Support Squadron. Okay. And uh, from there, what's next? Vietnam. So shipped West, right What from we California. call Westpac, yeah. I shipped, out of, uh, uh, I shipped out of El Toro in July of 67 and flew... We didn't fly out of California. The flights were going out of Cal- uh, uh, yeah, out of uh, the Air Force Base March or one of the other Air Force bases in Northern California. You were assigned to Mass Three uh-huh. uh, at that at that time. Mass Three entered Vietnam. Your unit uh, entered Vietnam November of '66. So they were here there just a little bit ahead of. You've done your homework uh, ahead of you. You've done yes, a lot sir. of homework, Tom. Uh, I try, and they they were posted initially at Chu Lai, right? Uh, which is describe where Chu Lai is. July is in southern Vietnam, right on the coast, a beautiful place. As a matter of fact, uh, it was right on the, the South China Sea, and one of the prettiest bodies of water I think I've ever seen was the South China Sea. Absolutely gorgeous. How close to the DMZ? That's, that's, that's a long way from the DMZ. It's probably uh, two hours. I, I don't know the mileage, but it's, it's south. If you well, I say south. It's kind of in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. Saigon and Tonsonut are down south. Chulai's kind of in the middle. Da Nang's kind of just a little further north than Chulai, and then you start getting up into what we call the highlands. Right. Um, what was the base like there at Chulai? Marines only, or was it a joint? No, joint? no, it was a big base. Uh, the army had some people there. Uh, it was a kind of a conglomerate. But uh, that's that's where our unit started out, and uh, we were there, and uh, uh, the Air Force was there, the Army was there, so it was a kind of a conglomerate. Mass three, give us a sense of how big of a unit that is. About how many, how many? Marines? You know, Tom, I don't remember. I'd say uh, I'd say we didn't have over probably uh, maybe a hundred personnel, one hundred and fifty, maybe. Not very big, not very big at all. And did you were you part of a unit designation, a smaller unit designation within Mass three? Only when we went up, only when we deployed to Quezon. Okay. No, we were all part of the same unit, but uh, when the ASRAT team, which I'll refer to as, as a team, when the ASRAT team uh, uh, deployed uh, to Quezon, we, we were separate from, we were part of the unit, but we were a separate team within the unit. Were you 
controlling missions while you were at July. Oh yeah, flight missions. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, not as many, not as intensive. Yeah, oh yeah. Where where were the strikes that you were controlling at that point? Probably within uh, probably within fifteen twenty miles of the base of where we were. Some were closer, depending on the targets we got. So even in the center part of the country at this point in time. So that, oh, yeah. that's the interesting thing about Vietnam. There there were not battle lines. No, the war took place. All over the place, oh, all over the country. Absolutely, it wasn't intensive. It's intensive at July as it was the north. But uh, for example, maybe uh, on an eight-hour shift, we might control two birds an hour. Whereas at Kason, we run a bird every ten minutes. Okay, so we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna get to that. So give us give us a typical day in July for you. What what was a normal day like for you as a Marine lieutenant? Basically, we worked, uh, when I say worked, we were on duty in the ASRAT eight hours. We worked eight-hour shifts. Other than that, uh, I was on a, one of my secondary MOSs. I was on a MEDCAP team. And uh, myself, along with a, a, a corpsman and maybe four or five other Marines, we'd go out into the ville. And that's a slang word for the village, and meet with the natives and, and do medical uh, medical examinations for the kids. And, and I got to know a lot of the Vietnamese people through that. What are your impressions? What are your memories of them? Good people. Good people. Uh, even though there was maybe a language barrier, I had one guy with me who's a very good friend of mine today. He's, uh, he's in Alaska, Sergeant Dan. Uh, he, could, he went to language school in Monterey, and he could speak. Vietnamese very fluently, and uh, he would interpret for me. And then I had a a twelve year old kid out there who could speak really good English, and he was a great asset. He he knew the village. He grew up there, and he took us around to places that uh, nobody would ever go. Hmm. So I I got to know the people really well, and that was part of our mission in Vietnam is the pacification program, which it has been. And it worked to some degree because I had a good relationship with those people. Matter of fact, they saved me a couple of times. Really? Yeah. How did the war affect them? Were they caught in the middle? Oh, yeah. Did they feel protected? Oh, yeah. by they, uh, they would, uh, I guess the best way I can describe it, they pull both ends toward the middle. They, they, they catered to the Americans because we gave them things. But yet at night the VC would come in and they didn't want to. They had to. They had to play it very, very, because if the Viet Cong felt like they were betraying them, they'd kill them. So it was tough for them. Very tough. Very tough. On January sixteenth, nineteen sixty-eight, your unit was transferred to Quezon. Describe Quezon for us. What was the? Do you know the overall importance of Quezon? What did Quezon mean to the war effort, the American war effort? I didn't know it at the time. Uh, what really tipped my hand is when we got ready to deploy up there, I was issued a 12-gauge pump shotgun with buckshot. Mm-hmm. And being a country boy, that got my attention. You knew what that meant. I knew exactly what that meant. But still, it didn't, uh, didn't register on me. It didn't really register on me until January the 21st. Right, which we're going to get to in a second. <laughs> J- just to give our listeners some background. So Quezon is in the north part of the country. It was one of the largest American bases there. And to the American high command, it was it was highly stri- strategic. We've already talked about the war was happening all over the country, but this was a strategic location. It was close to the DMZ, close to Laos, 
and the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was the main supply line, transport line for the North Vietnamese Army or the Pavin, uh, which is a, another portion of the North Vietnamese Army. So Quezon was was important strategically. This is what General Westmoreland, who was the overall American commander, had to say about it. He said, Quezon could serve as a patrol base for blocking enemy infiltration from Laos along Route 9, as a base for SOG operations to harass the enemy in Laos, as an airstrip for reconnaissance planes surveying the Ho Chi Minh Trail, as the western anchor for defenses south of the DMZ, and as an eventual jump-off point for ground operations to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So for him, Quezon has to be held. It has to be held at all costs, and that's a term that he used. And President Johnson agreed with him. Now, there were others in the high command who didn't agree with him. In fact, the I think the highest-ranking Marine Corps general there uh, fought pretty hard against it. His his reckoning was, if you abandon Quezon, doesn't mean a thing, which is going to be interesting as this all plays out. An awful lot happens between the time you arrive in mid-January until the time you leave in, in July. A whole lot happens. So so let's talk about that. So Quezon, now we know, is, is sort of the strategic center. It's It's considered to be held at all costs by American high command, including the President of the United States. You arrive on January 16th. What's your first impression of the place? Uh, my first impression is this is really an outpost. There's not much there. It's just tucked away in the mountains, and I look around, and there's nothing but mountains all around us, and we're in a bowl. And it, it still doesn't dawn on me till later what, what could happen there. We were up there. We got up there on the 16th and got our gear and everything operational by the 21st. And it didn't really we, – we had all the intelligence – Yes, the NVA around the hills and uh, the hills out up there, 881, 861, 950. Uh, we've got Marine uh, units on all those hills, but it still hadn't hit me. I can tell you exactly when it hit me, but uh, we'll get to that, I suppose. <laughs> so from but, a strategic location, and you learned yeah. this in, in your early training as a, as a young officer, uh, being in a fixed position with high ground all around you is not necessarily good if the yeah. enemy can take and hold well, those positions. what you left out and what was really important to the powers that be is they had Dien Bien Phu on their minds. Right. You know, where the French got annihilated at Dien Bien Phu, and Quezon was a perfect example of what could happen. It could be another Dien Bien Phu, and uh, nobody wanted that. Right. They were determined, Johnson and the powers that be were determined that Quezon was not going to be another Dien Bien Phu. January 21st just five days after you arrive, was a tough day. Uh, that was the opening attack where two divisions, some 20,000 uh, North Vietnamese Army, uh, Pavin or uh, People's Army of North Vietnam, uh, attacked. Uh, rockets and mortars coming in in the hundreds. They hit the base. And uh, to, to put it lightly, if you read the histories, uh, essentially leveled every above-ground structure that was there. One of the very first rounds that hit, hit an ammo dump that caused a huge explosion. Uh, the rockets and mortars, the American rockets and mortars that were inside, continued to detonate, doing more damage, adding to the carnage. 14 Marines were killed, 43 wounded on that first day. What do you remember? I was on duty, 5.30 in the morning, when the first rocket came in. I'll never forget it. Because when it hit, I looked over at the... This corporal that was sitting next to him, and I said, uh, that didn't sound like outgoing. It had a different crack to it. And I was, matter of fact, I was very close to the ammo dump when it, when it blew off. I, I, ne I never will forget that. I, I guess 
I think about what Mary Oliver said one time. She's a great poet. And she said, no matter how hard I try, I can never tell the story like it was. Mm. So you would have to have been there to really experience it. Uh, that first day you mentioned hundreds of rockets. I think history says there was about 1,500 rounds that came into that base. And how how more people didn't get killed, I have no idea. But that was, that was quite a—that was the turning point for me because I realized this is— this is some serious stuff. It just turned real. This is yeah. This is some. Re- this is the deal. So that's that's when it really hit me, uh, Tom. It's uh, and you didn't uh, have history on your side. You didn't know who was out there. No, you didn't know the numbers that we're talking about. I had no idea. All I knew that there were a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of rockets coming in. About how many Marines in the base? Somewhere between four and six thousand. Mm-hmm. That's a guess. Yeah, I think 5,500 is about that, is I'm in the, the, the rough I'm number. I'm in the ballpark. Uh-huh. Hey, I'm glad you're checking me. <laughs> You've done a good job with, and, your, with your, your homework. And, <laughs> and two full divisions of Paven troops uh, coming at you from about 20 three sides. plus thousand, about give or take 20. a little. The odds are bad. <laughs> <laughs> the odds are good for them if you're bad looking at us, attacking yeah. a, a, yeah. a fixed position. Yeah. However, the American Army has a number of advantages on their side. One, uh, they have the Marines. <laughs> and then by themselves are, are lethal weapons. But you had a lot of technology on your side as well. Yeah. And, uh, For, at that particular time, uh, at point in time, our technology was, what we did was state of the art. Like I told you earlier, it'd be antiquated now. Cutting edge, in yeah, fact. Yeah. 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 There, and there were a number of government programs that were just getting underway yeah. just as the Quezon battle yeah. began. We're going to talk more about that when we come back. Let's take our first break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Mr. Bill McEwen on his experiences in Vietnam. Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can always count on us for a great selection of late model, low mileage, one owner vehicles. All have been thoroughly inspected and are ready to go. You can even save time and buy online with our online shopping tool. Looking to sell your vehicle? Great news! We're paying top dollar for your trade. All makes, all models, and in any condition. Trade in and trade up today. At Columbia Chrysler Dodge Jeep Ram Fiat, you can count on us. Hi, this is Terry Tillis from Tillis Jewelry. Here is what some of our customers are saying about us. Great people. The place to shop for fair prices and great craftsmanship. Beautiful vintage and custom jewelry. Thank you, Beth. That is our goal. Stop by and see for yourself. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Tillis Jewelry, downtown Columbia. Owned and operated by Rick, custom designer and Carrie registered gemologist. Assuring you the best jewelry value and expert services. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning is built to a higher standard, so you can focus on the problems in your life that actually matter, like the stair that only creaks when everyone else in the house is asleep. American Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, built to a higher standard. Call Davis Heating and Cooling at 931-388-2090 for all your home comfort needs. Davis Heating and Cooling is your local American Standard dealer and proudly serves the Murray County area. Find Davis Heating and Cooling online and on Facebook or call today, 388-2090. 
Are you thinking about a new fence? Maybe you need a pole bar. Then you should give Sands Fence Company a call. That's 931-309-1644. Will Sands has built his business based on the principles of honesty, quality, and integrity. Sands Fence Company has been in business for over 20 years, providing the community with farm, residential, and commercial fencing, as well as pole barns and buildings. Call today for a free estimate. Sands Fence Company, 931-309-1644. 931-309-1644. This is Dr. Dominic Mancini from the Dr. Gill Center. Have you been injured in a car accident? Are you still in pain? Untreated whiplash injuries to the spine may lead to future conditions, such as neck pain, low back pain, and headaches. The doctors at the Dr. Gill Center specialize in detecting and treating these conditions before they get worse. Our accident consultations are free. Call me painfree.com or call 615-551-9224. Debbie Matthews grew up and lives in beautiful Columbia, Tennessee. As a realtor, she is well-versed in homes, neighborhoods, development, and schools. She wants to share her love of her home state with others to help them find just the right place to raise a family, open a business, or develop a dream. From luxury listings to land, she can handle it all. She is the current leading producer, Nashville Realty Group. Contact Debbie Matthews Realtor at 615-476-3224. That's 615-476-3224. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're having a discussion with Mr. Bill McEwen, who was a young Marine lieutenant in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968. He was describing, before the break, his experience as the siege of Quezon just began. Bill, so the, the first attack happened uh, on January 21 of 1967. You described about 1,500 mortars and rockets coming into the base. How, how did you react uh, you said it's almost impossible to give a description if you're not there. I, I understand that. But what was your initial reaction? You, you you immediately heard that the round sounded different. They're not outgoing. They're incoming. What was your physical reaction? What did you do? Let me let me back up just a minute. You said January 21st, 67. It was January 21st, 68. 68. I had to correct thank, you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's like I said earlier. Uh, you can't describe what it sounds, what it really feels like until you've experienced it. A round, an incoming round or an incoming shot has a completely different sound than an outgoing. It's a, it's, I can't describe it to you. It's just uh, it's not a good feeling. What did you do? What did I do? I, I dove in a hole. I was in a hole, and I stayed in a hole from there on. We, we were underground for the whole siege. We never came above ground after January 21st. We lived in bunkers. And the thing that I remember about being in those bunkers is number one, I wondered if we were going to get a direct hit and cave the bunker in on us, which was very likely to happen. They had uh, uh, they had a lot of uh, rounds that had delayed fuses on them. They wouldn't detonate when they hit the surface, but they would bury and then detonate. I, I, that was a very traumatic thought. And then under in those bunkers, what happened over time, they became rat-infested. And two things I remember, three things I remember distinctly about Quezon is the rats, huge, the red clay, and the intense fog at night, and which was very, very eerie. That's, that's embedded in my brain. Right. So you're underground. You hear the explosions yeah. happening, knowing that at any point one of those could have your name on it. That's right. So, the siege lasts 77 days. Right. And you didn't come up above ground. Well, you had to come up to go to the 
latrine, and that was one of the scariest parts of the whole time is when you had to get up and go out and use the latrine uh, because several of the guys didn't make it back from the latrine, and that kind of made an impression on you because you had to get up and go above ground, you know. But I learned, uh, I learned a couple of really big lessons in that deal. Number one is uh, I learned what my lifespan was. Hmm. You ever thought about what your lifespan is? It's between your in-breath and your out-breath. It's that space. That's it. Because I didn't know whether I'd ever take another breath or not. And I, I, that stuck with me my entire life. And the second thing, the second big lesson I learned at Caseon was that control is an illusion. You have no control over very little in your life. You can only control those things, how you choose to respond to each moment as it's presented to you. And those were huge lessons for me. How do you control fear? You have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, it'll, it'll embed itself in your muscles and bones forever. And I'm sure I'm still hanging on to some fear because you don't get over that overnight. Anybody that's ever been in combat would certainly know what I'm talking about. Did you lose friends there? Yeah. Yeah. Did you lose anybody in your command? No. We, we never lost anybody uh, that was exactly in my unit. We had, we had a couple of guys get medevaced, but nobody ever got, uh, nobody ever got killed. Bill, was, was there a sense of, of resignation when you were underground that just have to accept what, you're just going to accept what happens? Not really, Barry. Uh, that, never, that never came up. We did our job. Uh, we always felt like that uh, we would come out okay. No, I, I never remember a sense of resignation. Now, we had some really close calls, and, but, you know, we, we just did our, did our job. So let's talk about your job for a minute. Yeah. You you weren't just huddling in, in the ground and, and taking take taking incoming rounds. You were fighting back. As you explained, your job was to direct air fire on enemy positions. A couple of things. We, we talked about the break. You had technology on your side. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I read about, and you may or may not know about it, one was called Operation Niagara. Uh, within that, uh, another initiative, American initiative called Operation Igloo White. That operation went into effect on January 22nd, the day after the battle started, where strings of acoustic and seismic sensors were dropped, for for lack of a better term, behind enemy lines, which could capture the movements of enemy forces. That intel would then help direct attacks. I don't know if you had any use for that intel yeah, I didn't realize the names, but I knew about the sensors. Okay. So when you sent me that, I, I wasn't. But the sensors, what happened with those sensors? Yeah, we'd get information from those sensors about troop movements, and they, they that would be uh, funneled back to a, a fire support coordination center, and then they in turn would send us the coordinates. Absolutely, I didn't know the names, but I knew all about the sensors. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that was a brand, oh, brand yeah. new initiative. Big time, and. Uh, if, if you guys want to read a couple of books that really, really uh, talk about this, there's very, been very little written about uh, the air power at Quezon. There's one book called The Gunpowder Prince that you all would probably enjoy, and another one is called A Patch of Ground. Both of them are written by a guy named Mike Archer. And matter of fact, I talked to Mike just the other day and sent him the hard copy that I sent you because he'd never seen that. Hmm. So absolutely, yes, we did use, back to your question, we absolutely use that intelligence. Take us through a mission. Take us through the process of guiding an airplane into, onto an enemy position, if you will. Okay. We would get targets, uh, the coordinates of the targets uh, called over to us from the uh, Fire Support Coordination Center, known as the FSCC. We would get the targets, 
we would dial them in our computer, the coordinates. And then uh, we were running on a, a tremendous volume of aircraft up there. The Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps were all sending aircraft to us uh, because the powers that be were determined not to let Quezon fall. They did not want another Denbin Fu on their hands. So an aircraft would come up, call in. Uh, our, car, our call sign up there was Carstairs Bravo. They would call in, Carstairs Bravo, this is such and such. I'm an A4, A6, F, F4, and I've got such and such ordnance on board. We had a ballistic chart that had the different ordinances that they would have, and we would dial in the, the type of ordinance they had, dial in the time to splash down and what they call trail, which is uh, another term that we use. We'd lock on the aircraft, and then we would give that aircraft headings uh, toward the target. I'd have him fly a certain airspeed. I would have him at a certain altitude, and I was looking at everything he had in the cockpit. And once he settled on course, we would continue the conversation, I would say, like 20,000 meters till splashdown, 10,000 meters. And normally at about 8,000 meters, I would tell him to Armstrong whatever ordinance that I was going to drop. Most of the time at Quezon, it was all it was a salvo. It was all at once because we didn't have time to make multiple runs. So I would tell him to Armstrong... Uh, Armstrong, your ordnance. That's that's. He flipped. He had a toggle switch in the aircraft that he would flip up, which would arm the the bombs that he was carrying. And then I would keep giving him vectors. If he was one or two degrees off course, I wouldn't drop. So they had to be very precise in flying right down the right down the middle. Once I got him down to about two thousand meters, I would tell him stand by, stand by. And then when that computer read zero, I'd say mark, mark. And he would hit his switch and turn the ordnance loose. Uh, I gave him a breakaway heading, and then I would always say to him, uh, I've got your coordinates when you're ready to copy. We always gave him coordinates. On average, on a typical mission like this, about how far away are you from the target? It depends. As you can see from what I brought you right there, uh, sometimes it was within 50 meters. They're close. Yeah, yeah, depending so you, on what was so happening. you need to be accurate. Oh, yeah, and uh, that's the thing about it. In that article I gave you, Colonel Lowndes, who was head of the 26 Marines up there, said that for this particular ASRAD, I wouldn't be afraid to drop within 50 meters. Mm, wow. So <laughs> You were kind enough to bring us some audio of what one of these missions sounds like. I'd like to play it, uh, if you'll allow us. Bravo, chain 94, over. Uh, Roger, chain 94, King Lear, Bravo. How are you reading me, over? Uh, I'm reading you uh, about uh, 4 by 5 My lineup, uh, 1A4 has 2 Delta 25, conical fins, and uh, 2 Delta 2 bandit space, over. Okay, 9-4, request you uh, anchor 40 present positive, and I'll have to crank in some ballistics here for the Delta 25, and we'll get them off first, and also be advised you're beacon this hour. Uh, right here, beacon this hour, and uh, I'm going to port over. Yeah, what is he Roger. Okay, I'm doing a splash. I have a real good fire almost right under me right now. 
That's firm. Okay, there's no bottom. And that last one looked real good. I don't care anybody else working in this particular area. Well, that's a negative. We've got one more bird due up about 35, 40 minutes. Okay, if you'll modulate that, I'll uh, slip out here just a little ways and uh, drop down for the overcast and uh, have a look. All right, Roger, and uh, hit your coordinates for that last drop if you're ready, Connie. Roger, go ahead. Uh, Bravo Tango 205235. That that's amazing. So that audio is you speaking directly to the pilot, vectoring him to to the enemy position. He drops his bombs at about what height? Uh, probably uh, probably around ten, fifteen thousand feet. 10? That's a real piece of history right there. That, it, that's that's incredible. incredible. I'm, I'm lucky to have that. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> so it's overcast. He drops his bombs. And then he flies low to see what the... Yeah, as he said in the audio, he, I want to drop down under the overcast to see what we did. And luckily, we had a, we hit something big that night. I don't know what it was. And you got a photograph of it. Well, yeah. It's, it's, a huge explosion. Uh, yeah, now, I, we don't know. I don't know what it was. It was ammo dump or, or something, yeah. How many of these missions did you control in a day in Quezon? Ah, uh, when we were really, really busy up there, and that was basically the whole time... Uh, we were running about a, uh, and I had an. Eight, we, there were three officers up there, and each one of us had an eight-hour shift. I was running a bird every ten to fifteen minutes. Uh, while I was at Kason, I ran over. Uh, I think it's in the, the thing I gave you. I ran over uh, thirteen hundred voice vector radar bombing missions, and uh, uh, we bombed. Uh, I'm totally convinced if it hadn't been for the air power at Kason. Uh, and that includes what we did. It includes the arc lights, which were the B-52s that we had nothing to do with. Uh, we probably wouldn't have made it. Plus the fact that General Yap, who was in charge of the uh, the North Vietnamese Army, he made some blunders, some tactical blunders. But we, I didn't realize at the time how precarious we were. Uh, the situation was at Quezon. But uh, uh, just a few things going the other way, we wouldn't have probably made it. It would have been another Dinh Bin Phu. President Johnson knew he had a scale model of Quezon in his White House office, and he was paying close attention every day yeah. as to what was what was happening there. Yeah. Dan Bienfu was definitely on his oh, yeah. mind. Yeah, but we were in a very precarious situation, and uh, had the dice rolled a couple other ways, we probably wouldn't have made it out of there. On the flip side of the air war, you're under siege. There's no getting out, and it was tough getting supplies in. It was estimated uh, that... It took over 150 tons of supplies a day to keep the Marines that were there uh, fed and clothed. How did they get supplies in? Uh, got them in for a while with convoys, and then it got so bad we had to get them in through air. And uh, we didn't have very many gourmet meals. We were on sea rations, and, and the water got pretty scarce up there. And that's one of the big blunders that General Gap made. Had he uh, done something, cut our water supply off, we were getting water from... Uh, I think it was the river right outside the base. Had he cut our water supply off, we would have really been in a bad situation. But anyway, we got them in through helicopters. Uh, all our supplies came in through uh, via helicopters or C-130s. And then uh, once the runway was annihilated, then 130s couldn't land. And we did some low-altitude uh, parachute drops out of the back of the 130s. There's some incredible footage out there of the supply yeah. efforts yeah. coming in at low altitude and yeah. dropping pallets of yeah of material uh, out the back of these airplanes. We controlled some of that. We did some of that. Did you really? Which was very innovative for a mass outfit. Never been done before. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes they dropped outside the wire. 
<laughs> uh, it's incredible. The, the planes are under fire, coming yeah. in, flying out. And uh, yeah. how many planes were lost? Any idea? You know, I don't know, Tom. I really don't know. I remember uh, there was a picture on Life magazine. I think it was Life or uh, one of the magazines where I see one thirty got blown up on the runway. I, I watched that happen. Really? I saw that happen. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Uh, so probably the scariest time for me on the whole deal at Quezon was the day I got ready to leave. Uh, I went down to the runway, which I knew was a it was the center of the bullseye. And there were two choppers that came in, and naturally I got up and ran to get on the first one, which was the closest one to me. They both took off, and the second chopper never made it back to Da Nang. Hmm. Fate would have it. I got on the one that was closest to me. Had I been on the other chopper, I'd have never made it back to Da Nang. Wow. So there's a lot of luck involved. <laughs> <laughs> the fortunes of war. During their time in Vietnam, Mass 3, your unit, uh, the air radar teams controlled more than 38,000 APTPQ-10 missions, radar missions directing more than 121,000 short tons of ordnance on 56,753 targets. Uh, incredible, those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the amount of responsibility you had, uh, the amount of work that you, you did uh, to save the, your own life and the lives of your fellow Marines, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, you left Quezon in March mm -hmm. and went to Da Nang. Mm -hmm. How'd you get out? Had things calmed down by then? On that chopper. That I just told you yeah. about. Uh, no, it, it was still hot. It was still very hot. Uh, the siege probably went on through the end of March, 1st of April. What did it feel like leaving there? Uh, incredible. But I, I didn't really feel it till I got back to Da Nang. And then it just, uh, I don't know, it was like a dream. It's like a dream. Describe Da Nang. Uh, was it safe there? Anything would be safe compared to Quezon. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never even, yeah, I was vigilant, but it was, it was you know. It, nothing, nothing was like like that place. Uh, I imagine you slept pretty well. I did, I did. Uh, good food. You know, it was it was almost like uh, being back in the real world. How long were you there? Uh, I stayed at Da Nang for I don't remember how long, but I went back up to Quezon in May to direct our Hilo operations, uh, resupply, recon inserts, medic medevacs. So I was back up there for probably a month or so. Boy, I dreaded to go back up there, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad then. I mean, sure, we got shot at, you know, some during the day, but not like 1,500 rounds at one time, you know. By the time the siege lifted, 274 Americans had been killed at Quezon, 2,541 more wounded. Although the number is unclear, even today, estimates range between 5,500 and 10,000 North Vietnamese troops killed in the battle but the americans held uh let me let me say this we had it good compared to the guys that were on the hills right outside caisson hill 881 north and south those guys caught total hell out there uh and i know a lot of guys that were out there and uh I, you know we had it good on the base compared to what those guys went through they were entrenched on those hills mm -hmm. uh and it was tough and they it were was, they were attacked <clears throat> Pretty, pretty absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I would like to think what we did helped those guys out because we dropped a lot of ordnance out there uh, trying to protect those guys yeah, on those hills. It absolutely helped those yeah. those men. Yeah, incredible. Quezon, uh, in many ways, was a turning point in the war mm -hmm. militarily. I think holding that base meant a lot, <clears throat> but it's part of a much bigger story. Yeah. In the time in which the battle happened, you saw a lot of changes happening in America. In March of, of 68, while you're there, after 
following that battle on and that scale model in his office, President Johnson announced that he would not seek re-election for the presidency, in part because of what's happening in Vietnam. In April, Martin Luther King is assassinated. In June, Robert Kennedy is assassinated. This is a pivot point in American history, I think, and Quezon plays into all of that. Oh, uh, yeah. that's uh, I remember that happening, and I... Uh, that's when that was a turning point, as you said, and I can I can look back on. I thought about it at the time. You know, you have all this happening. The USS Pueblo, the Koreans, you know, North Korea. I said, man, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. And here I am over here, nine thousand miles from home. What's it going to be like when I go back? Oh yeah, that that uh, that got my attention. So one of the big questions militarily as Quezon is happening is why? Why are the Vietnamese putting so many resources into this? northern american outpost i think uh, a bigger question is why did we uh, as americans why did we think we needed to defend it if you if you read the book barry and it's a, probably a great book uh dereliction of duty by mcmaster uh it was it was really political and looking back on it you know you ask yourself the question was was vietnam really necessary and you, you have to answer probably not it was a lot of political, although at the time, we didn't know it. We thought it was Johnson had the, you know, his paradigm was a domino effect. You know, if, if Vietnam falls, well, then the, the, the Chinese communists are just going to keep going. But in retrospect, probably not. Probably not. The Vietnamese are putting a lot of resources into Da Nang, maybe. In hindsight, from a strategic standpoint, they're doing it to maybe focus American direction on that point on a map when they had a much bigger strategy going on. Because during Quezon is when the Tet Offensive happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was all over the country. Which it happened. It was Saigon, Da Nang, Chula. I mean, it was a bigger picture. Right. Exactly. So as the siege is happening, the North Vietnamese Army attacks South Vietnam in most of the major urban centers and larger towns. One of the uh, bigger bigger battles up there that nobody really ever talks about a lot was the, the siege on Hue. The capital, the old capital city of Vietnam. Man, that was atrocious what happened in Hue. Right. You know, so, yeah, you're right. So, so Quezon is, is one piece from a Vietnamese one, standpoint. One, it's yeah. one piece in a much bigger strategy that's right. happening that it, it seems that the Americans weren't prepared for. They weren't, weren't ready for it. It doesn't seem like Westmoreland had a grasp on the possibility of that, that option. Probably right. Probably right. He didn't look at the whole picture. Yeah, Bill, what I was reading about this, it seems like at the time, and even today, some historians are divided on whether Quezon was the objective for the uh, for the North Vietnamese and whether some of the other attacks as part of the Tet Offensive was a diversion or whether Quezon itself was the diversion uh, to make possible success in Saigon and other urban centers. We'll, we'll probably never know the answer to that one, but you're exactly right. It, it could have been. It could have been just... Uh the, the the straw man, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it's uh, if you look at the whole uh, if you look at the whole scope of things, uh, uh, General Yap's philosophy and uh, uh, it, it's it's a question still unanswered, Barry. You left in July, July twenty one mm-hmm. of nineteen sixty eight. That was yesterday, as a matter uh, of fact, uh, my anniversary. anniversary. Right. <laughs> what did that feel like leaving Vietnam? Oh. I will never forget leaving Da Nang when the wheel wells of that airplane touched up. I remember everybody on that uh, that plane just let out a huge cheer because uh, when we 
lifted off. That was a that was an incredible feeling, but it doesn't compare with what it felt like when the wheels touched down on American soil. That was an amazing that was an amazing feeling to know that I had survived 13 months and uh, here I was back home. Amazing feeling. What was your reception like back home? You know, it was, uh, there was a lot of protest. Uh, we heard a lot of uh, baby killers. Hmm. Uh, it was just basically the same kind of thing that's going on right now. You know, while I was gone, in addition to what you said, we had Kent State right, and all of those things going on. It was, uh, America was very divided. Uh, but I came home back to Middle Tennessee and went about my business, and I was isolated from a lot of it. You know, having living, lived in Columbia, Tennessee and Middle Tennessee, we didn't have a lot of that here. I want to spend a little time on your yeah. uh, po- post-military career, but you went up two ranks. While you're in Vietnam, I did. yes. You, you. Well, uh, yeah, I went up two ranks before I got out. I went up, yeah. But let me say this: the reason that we were making rank fast is because we were losing so many officers. Hmm. I, I guess that's part of it. I have no idea, but I did. I was very fortunate, yeah. and I probably could, could have had a good uh, career in the Marine Corps. A matter of fact, I thought about very seriously extending for a while, and I asked the the powers that be, you know, okay, if I extend for a couple, three years, what about the first year? And they said, we'll send you mostly anywhere you want to go. What about the second year? You probably go back to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't, you know, had enough. I didn't want to push the envelope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was but, the next step for you, leaving the military? You're a captain in the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah. You decide to get out. What's next? I went back to UT and got my degree in uh, uh, got a got a master's. Went to Columbia State, as Barry knows, and uh, history a, again. Or no, I got it in uh, uh, college student personnel and psychology. And while I was at Columbia State, uh, I, I did a lot of did a lot of different things. Uh, I was in administration and faculty and director of an off-campus center and so forth. How has Vietnam affected you? Fifty years, fifty plus years later. Probably the first thing that comes to mind, Tom, is a tremendous sense of gratitude for what we have. I don't take anything for granted. If I, I don't take a tremendous sense of gratitude that, that we're truly blessed in this country. When, you, when you've seen war and combat and seen another culture and live with another culture, it makes you really grateful for uh, the things that we have in this country. Although we're not perfect, but we do have a lot to be grateful for. What's When somebody mentions Vietnam, what's the strongest memory that comes to your mind? How does it make you feel? Probably the strongest memory that comes to mind is Quezon. You never forget things like that. That's probably, and the people, the, 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 the South Vietnamese people were really good people. And, and, and another thing that comes to my mind is the extreme beauty of the country. It's a beautiful country. You're a glass half full person, aren't you, Bill McEwen? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been an incredible story, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share it with us today. We, we appreciate it so much. Uh, thank you for your service to our country. Uh, and I hope your story will be a lesson to others. Thank you. We end the show with this quote from the Washington Star, which was written just after the Battle of Quezon ended. To be sure, Quezon will be a subject of controversy for a long time, but this much about it is indisputable. It has won a large place in the history of the Vietnam War as an inspiring example of American and allied valor. One day, in fact, the victory over the siege may be judged a decisive turning point that finally convinced the enemy he could not win.
On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. I'm Robert Rogers at Parks Motor Sales Buick GMC. Parks Motor Sales was founded by my granddad, Bobby Parks, and my great-granddad, Julian Mays, in 1958. We've been family-owned the whole time, and being family-owned, locally-owned, means you get to get your next vehicle or your existing vehicle serviced by the same people who stand in the grocery line with you, drop their kids off at the same school you do, and smile and are happy to see you when they do. So come see us at Parks Motor Sales in Columbia, Tennessee, on 919 Nashville Highway or ParksMotorSales.com. I'm Barbara Lincoln with Holland's Pharmacy. We have advertised with WKRM and WKOM for the past several years and found it to be very successful. I highly recommend advertising with them if you have a local business like ours. We're located at 1608 Hatcher Lane here in Columbia. We're open Monday through Friday from 8 to 6 and Saturdays from 8 to 2. Stop by Holland's for all your prescription needs where we have fast, friendly, courteous service. We custom fit support hosts for you also. Thanks for supporting Holland's and WKRM and WKOM. Hi, I'm Steve, the Garbage Man. Are you new to Murray County? We want to welcome you and your family. We are a local residential garbage service, and we want to be your garbage man. We've been around for over 30 years, so we have a reputation. Check us out at garbagemaninc.com or call Mike at 931-540-0919. You could also ask your neighbor. 931-540-0919. For 40 years, the Jewelers Bench has worked hard for their customers and provided the highest quality jewelry at the best price. They keep going back. Recent renovations have allowed them to expand their inventory. More high quality jewelry, custom vintage and estate pieces, and professional jewelry and watch repairs. They also buy gold. The Jewelers Bench, still here, still great service. 808 Trotwood Avenue, Columbia. Every morning, I park my car across the street from my business, and I can't wait to get in there. That's pretty common for small business owners. We have the added satisfaction, however, of guiding hundreds of families with their retirement, education, savings, and general investments. We're a locally owned business that tries very hard to simplify a complicated world. This is Monty Sneed from Caledonian Financial in historic downtown Columbia. Securities and investment advisory services offered through NBC Securities Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Columbia Foodland is a locally owned and operated family grocery store with a full line of dry, dairy, frozen, meat, and produce items. We focus on keeping the freshest hand-cut meat and produce items daily with the most competitive prices in town. We offer weekly ad specials as well as in-store weekly specials throughout the store. Located at 427 West 7th Street in Columbia in the former Harris Foodland location. Columbia Foodland. We are here and ready to serve the wonderful people of Columbia and the surrounding areas. Hello, my name is Connor Mims. My wife Bradley and I live in Columbia, Tennessee in Riverside. I am a deck and porch builder and my wife is a second grade teacher at Riverside Elementary. My specialty is designing and building elegant and comfortable porches and decks. Let me work with you to design and build the porch or deck of your dreams. Give us a call today from our website, MimsModernLandscape.com. That's MimsModernLandscape.com and check out what we have to offer. Thanks. 
Hello, my name is Zach Maddox. I'm a proud third-generation owner-operator of Columbia Paint and Wall Cover, founded by my grandfather, Ralph Maddox, in 1946. Now I'm honored to continue the legacy as owner-operator today. We offer a variety of paint and wall covering products, but our passion is customer service. We can offer many personalized services and can come out to your house or business if needed. Visit us at our store, Downtown Columbia, at 1114 Carmack Boulevard or online at paintcolumbia.com. This is Trip Stoltz with Columbia Ace Hardware. I love listening to 101.7 WKOM FM, Columbia, Tennessee.